Well, with that, would you take your Bibles and would you open please with me to the book of Genesis and make your way to the 46th chapter, the 46th chapter of Genesis. I want to catch you up to where we are. If you're visiting with us, uh, you're not aware of where we've been, and we're actually at the end of a long book, and I need to just give a few words to explain what's gone on before so that when we begin looking at the text, we'll kind of understand where we are. A man named Jacob had 12 sons by four wives, one of those named Joseph. The other sons were extremely jealous of the exalted affection that the dad, Jacob, gave to this one son above all others, Joseph. And so when they had the opportunity, they ended up selling him for a profit into a traveling caravan that was going down to the land of Egypt. And he was sold as a slave at the age of 17. Through a series of almost impossible circumstances, he became the lead servant of one of the most powerful men of the land of Egypt. And when everything was looking bright for him, his master's wife accused him of rape. The accusation was entirely false, but nonetheless it was regarded as true because of the woman who made it, and so Joseph was thrown into prison. But again, the circumstances almost unbelievably turned out for the favor, as Joseph rose to the place of great prominence, even in prison, overseeing essentially all the functions of it. This young man who had every right and reason to be bitter and angry with humanity and with God for the way his life had gone when he had done virtually nothing wrong, was instead being treated as if he was one of the country's worst offenders. When he was in prison, there was some of Pharaoh's great officials who came in, and Joseph did them favors, and they forgot him. And he ended up staying in prison for years and years, forgotten, neglected. And so this man, still young, the victim, you could say, of great trials, of being falsely accused, of being neglected, nonetheless at the right and propitious time, the pharaoh of the land has dreams at night. They are a portend of those things that shall occur in the future, both blessings and curses to his land. But there is no one in all his cabinet to explain them. And it is at this moment that the memory comes back to one of those served by Joseph when in prison and says, I know of a young man, a Hebrew in prison. He can predict dreams and foretell dreams. And so they rush Joseph into the presence of Pharaoh. And Joseph says, this is what God says and explains the dreams. There will be seven years of great abundance of harvest and seven years of almost mind-bending famine. Joseph gives counsel to Pharaoh in the very same day that he began in prison and says, let Pharaoh find a man who is able to administrate such an event. Pharaoh basically opens up his arms, sweeps the court, and says, who among us is this kind of man but you? And appoints Joseph to be the second highest in command of the then at that time most powerful nation on the world, Egypt. Eventually, the famine begins. 
and his brothers living 250 miles away up in the land of Canaan, now what we know as the land of Israel, make their way down in order to try to get seed because they are in the middle of famine. And they come and Joseph recognizes them, though they recognize not Joseph for his great power and for he is, after all, looks exactly like an Egyptian lord. He puts them through a series of grievous trials, both of false accusation and neglect. And he allows them and even his own father to go through a measure of the trial that he himself went through. And finally, as the brothers are just breaking of their pride and their blame shifting and their arrogance, we saw it last week, Joseph reveals himself to these men. And they almost can't handle it. And then Joseph sends them back to the father up in the land of Canaan with caravans full of all kinds of food and spices and goods of Egypt. We saw this last week. The sons have to tell the father what's gone on. And now they're going to make their way back down to Egypt where there's still another five years of famine yet to go. All of this now sets you up for the reunion that is to occur between this awfully treated son and this awfully treated father, that there is to be a presentation made not only of Joseph to his father, but eventually of the father even to Pharaoh. So let's begin with those reunions as we pick up the text in chapter 46. Make your way, please, to verse 28. Now Jacob, that's the father, sent Judah, that's one of his sons, before him to Joseph to point out the way before him to Goshen. That's in the Nile Delta region of Egypt. And they came into the land of Goshen. Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a long time. This is the event that Joseph has dreamed of and planned of and that his father Jacob has in no wise dreamed of believing all these years his son Joseph to be dead that now occurs. And the most important thing for Joseph is to show maximal honor to his father. Maximal honor to his father. Look at verse 29. First thing he does is he prepares his chariot. And then secondly, it says that he appeared before him. Your version might even say he presented himself before him. This was a formal ceremony. Joseph dressed in full regalia, the ring given to him by Pharaoh, the dress, the gold chain, the retinue of servants, the military procession, all in order to provide his father, Jacob, with maximal honor. It was was kind of like what we saw. I want you just to go back briefly to chapter 45, verse 13, as Joseph is with his brothers. And do you see it there in 45, 13? Joseph tells his brothers, Now you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. The word splendor is really better translated the word glory. Joseph is fully aware that he needs to 
expose his father out of mercy and honor to the fullness of the glory, the splendor that he has received in the land of Egypt. This will give Jacob, his father, the visual and emotional context to see that what his own sons had done against him, God had chosen to use for good. So that he would be able to comprehend not only the depth of betrayal of his own sons, but to put that into the bigger picture. Jacob, this is what God has done. So it's really an act of mercy over in chapter 46, verse 29, when he prepares the chariot and makes a formal presentation. Then, after all that is done, then come the emotions. Verse 29, as soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while, a long time. Maybe he kept on putting his face into his dad's neck, crying, only to lift it up again, look at his father's face, not be able to handle it, only to bury his face once again in his father's neck and begin to cry. And his father, over and over and over again, as they looked at each other, 20 years now, not having seen each other. And here is this lord of Egypt, dressed in his full regalia, melted back to a 17-year-old boy once again. But I want you to think with me for a moment as you're thinking about Joseph and Jacob, about the ten onlookers, his brothers. What were they thinking at that moment? Guilt, right? Guilt. They were the reason, the human reason for why all this had occurred. But we don't want to stay there. We just want to note that. And let's move on to verse 30, because it's important. Then Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, that you are still alive. This is not Jacob feeling sorry for himself. He's going to live another 17 years. This is, notice the text Israel. This is his God-given name. Israel, the man who believes the promises of God. This is not Jacob the deceiver. This is Israel the friend of God. It's Jacob in faith. And what he's saying here is, is, I finally get it, Lord. I understand now my afflictions. I understand my agonies, my sufferings. I understand now why you did what you did and why you allowed my sons to do to me what they did. Remember, Jacob is the man who fights God no longer. This is Israel, the man who believes the promises of God. This is the trusting in God, Jacob, right here. Do you ever say this to God yourself, now let me die? Do you ever say that? In other words, I get it, God. I get it. When you're looking at your future with confidence, you can say, now let me die. Because God's promises are your trust. You've seen enough. You understand who God is. Jacob says, 
now let me die as he sees Joseph where? In Egypt. He's in Goshen. He's in the best land of Egypt. And he makes a connection here between what he's experiencing in life and between the promises of God. This is where it connects with you and me. There were promises given 250 years ago to his grandfather Abraham. The promises were like this. You're going to have a lot of descendants, Abraham, and they're going to go down to a foreign land that will oppress them 400 years, and at the end of that time, I'm going to deliver them out of it with many possessions. So now Jacob, or as he's called in this passage, Israel, now sees the fact of God's promises beginning to be fulfilled, take shape. So he says, now let me die. He begins to see it. Wouldn't you always like to be able to say, now let me die? You can say to God, you have not allowed a single one of your promises to fall to the ground. Now let me die. You are true. You are faithful. See, Jacob is not saying, as, as some of us do sometimes, Now let me die. I'm so tired. Now let me die, God. I am so weak. Now let me die. I I hate the circumstances of my life. It's not what he's saying. Let us be Christians who believe the promises of God. Even if our own Israel is down in Egypt, in other words, everything is spun around and on its head, when we believe the gospel, we justify God. We give our amen to his promises. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For as many as are the promises of God, in Christ they are yes, therefore also through Christ is our amen to the glory of God through us. I love the hymn, maybe my favorite, Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. This is trust right here out of Jacob. So this marvelous scene comes about where Jacob and Joseph are reunited. Now, the rest of the chapter here, chapter 46, is actually kind of humorous. Uh, Basically, Joseph tells... uh, his brothers on how to relate when he's going to take them into Pharaoh. He wants to make sure that Joseph does that when they settle in Egypt, well, they're not going to be attacked by anybody in Egypt. They're going to have free and clear title to the land that they're being given. And so the best way to do that is to have a delegation of the brothers go in and see Pharaoh and get Pharaoh to remark on it, get it written down in court so that it it basically is unimpeachable. So Joseph chooses five of his brothers, and probably, as I would like to think, probably the most socially presentable, the most socially sophisticated, which means not, of these brothers. And uh, he takes them into Pharaoh's court, and he says to them before he takes them, and listen, guys, just one thing, whatever you do, When you're in front of Pharaoh, do not tell Pharaoh that you are a what? A shepherd. You remember that? Because the Egyptians, they hate shepherds. 
No explanation given. Um, Joseph is not trying to fix the cultural problems in Egypt. It's just, guys, this is the way it is. Whatever you do, don't tell Pharaoh you're a shepherd, okay? That's the only thing I don't want you to do. But go over to chapter 47 with me and join me in verse 2. Joseph took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. When Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? So they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. The exact wrong thing. The exact thing Joseph tells them not to say. (laughs) Why'd they do it? I don't know why. I don't know why. But it does tell you how impossible it is for them to hear the words of their brother and follow along, as simple as that instruction was. I imagine when they got in front of Pharaoh, they were just blown away by the majesty of his court. After all, they're just (laughs) shepherds. But Joseph says, whatever you do, don't say this. And of course, what do they do? Well, maybe it was just guilt. Maybe it's just the twistedness of guilt in them. Now, the response from Pharaoh is funny. Pharaoh ignores them. He only talks to Joseph. He, He basically ignores the brothers. But then there is a second presentation that comes up right after this. And this is Joseph bringing his patriarchal dad, Jacob. He brings him right in to the court, right in front of Pharaoh. Things go much better. Join me in verse 7 of chapter 47. Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many years have you lived? So Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had ordered. Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to their little ones. Now let's pause here. And while we're rejoicing in how good it is for them to have lots of food, to be in the best of the land, to remember the broader picture of what's going on in Scripture at this point. Everything is wrong. Israel is down in Egypt. This is not the place for them to be. Based on God's promise, Israel belongs in the promised land, in the land of Canaan. So everything is turned upside down. Everything is twisted. They are out of the promised land. Can you relate to this? Really, for them, life is vulnerable. And vulnerability causes our insecurities to arise. And when our insecurities arise, our fears begin to take over. So they're feeling, they've got to be feeling somewhat vulnerable. And as a result, there's got to be fear. You ever feel that way? Vulnerable in life? Today, every day? And it's always a temptation to, to kind of strike at the depth of our insecurities as individuals, as men leading families, as women trying to keep the family together and going, as individuals at work and all the other factors of life, health issues. And when all these insecurities begin to arise, we all begin to feel a lot of fear. We get scared. We wonder, will God provide we, okay, I can handle today, but will God provide tomorrow? And all these insecurities and secret murmurings begin to be thought 
and felt. You ever feel that way? You ever deal with that? Well, good, because I never do. I never do. That's just for other people, of course. It's the Lord who introduces insecurity into our lives, actually. And he has so many means and mechanisms and tools by which he can do that. So many different things that he can do. And so what we are required to do as believers is to execute our saving faith continually in the promises of God. You remember when you executed your saving faith? You remember when you trusted in Christ? You remember when you called upon the name of the Lord? Do you remember when you repented of your sin? Do you remember when you believed on the gospel? You were fearful, you were insecure, you were vulnerable, and you called out to the Lord, and he answered you with salvation, the greatest gift there is. Now, exert that same saving faith in the promises of God in today's insecurities and today's uncertainties, and let them counteract the fears that rise up in our hearts. The fact is, of course, that just as God had a perspective on the complete trial that, that Jacob was in and that Joseph was in and that the brothers were in, so too also God has a complete perspective upon the trials of your life. Now you'll see this in the next section here. Join me in verse 13 of chapter 47. Now there was no food in all the land because the famine was very severe so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. Why is Canaan mentioned here? Why show that? Because it shows if the Israelites had stayed up in Canaan, they would have died. They had to go to Egypt in order to be saved from the famine and in order for Joseph to become one of the greatest men of human history. And that is what Moses does next. First thing Joseph does in light of the famine that is across Egypt is to gather all the money. Look at verse 14. Joseph gathered all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they brought. bought. And Joseph bought, brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Now at this point there are two years of famine gone, five more to come. The following year of famine, Joseph took all the people's livestock in exchange for seed. Now they had no real ability to gather a harvest except by what they themselves could do with their hands. And the next year after that, as the famine continued, he purchased all the land in Egypt. So effectively then, by the end of the fourth year, Pharaoh owned all the land and he owned all the people. Everybody is essentially put into slavery. But Joseph gave people seed. You only had to give 20% of it back to Pharaoh. You kept 80% of it. He introduced not a communism nor a socialism, but he, he introduced kind of a slavery with a bit of private ownership just for dignity's sake. Look at verse 23. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have today bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you may sow the land. At the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own for seed of the field and for your food and for those of your households. 
and as food for your little ones. The idea here in verse 24 is that you are working with your own hands. In fact, the text literally says where it says your own, it's literally your own hands. So Joseph puts them under burdensome taxation, makes them all slaves of Pharaoh, but yet gives them the dignity of producing food for themselves by giving them seed, and they get to keep 80%. It's kind of like a, a serfdom, a fiefdom, if you're familiar with that. I had a friend once who decided that he could no longer pay taxes. He said that his conscience could no longer let him because of the government of the United States. You ever met anybody like that? Anybody who says, uh, there's no way, I can't, uh, I, can't, I can't do that, can't pay taxes. Actually, I think he was just greedy. I think he ended up, I heard he got caught, and they made him pay everything plus interest. It never worked out. So what did the people of Egypt think about Joseph taking 20%? Well, actually, it's pretty good. Look at verse 25. So they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's slaves. He's a savior of the land. It wasn't only that Joseph was sent down to Egypt. Now we learn in order to preserve the sons of Jacob. It was greater. It was to preserve the nation of Egypt as well. And... Joseph becomes one of the great legislators of all of human history. Look at 26. Joseph made it a statute, a law, concerning the land of Egypt, valid to this day. That's when Moses is writing it 500 years later. That Pharaoh should have the fifth, only the land of the priest did not become Pharaoh's. How many laws do you know of that are still on the books after 500 years, especially taxation laws? And so at this point now, Egypt becomes, for the people of Israel, the land of plenty. Look at 27. Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen, and they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. 17 years the old man lived down in Egypt, the most mature and probably the very best years of the man's life, even though physically probably broken down, yet emotionally, mentally, spiritually, familially, the very best years of his life. He probably thought, my son Joseph is dead, and now these last years have been filled with Joseph and Joseph having children and seeing these glorious sons born to Joseph, his son. What a magnificent time. But best of all, Jacob would have had a long period of time to do what you and I should do, which is to take our days as best we can and to use them in meditation upon God and his ways and what he has done in our lives and what scripture teaches might be done in the future. For us to meditate upon a good and sovereign God is to merely recognize that he himself is the architect of all of life, that he is good and that he is kind and merciful, and that all the people and all the feelings and all the fears that enter into our hearts that tell us that God is unkind, he can't be trusted, he wants to 
ruin and destroy me. He sees the vulnerable parts of my heart, and he only wants to expose those so that I will be destroyed are mere and full satanic lies. God is good. God is kind. God is merciful. God provides. So here for 17 years, Jacob brings 70 guys, 70 people, including children, down to Egypt. But the text says they became very numerous at the end of verse 27. Numbers chapter 1 says that at the end of the period of time when they were down in Egypt, the number of men over 20 years old, in other words, the number of men who could go out to war, was 603,550. And the nation would have been in total between 2 and 3 million people at the end of that 400 years. Now, 200 million people out of 70 people is astronomical growth. It's one of those numbers that critics of the Bible like to claim is wrong. It's an exaggeration. But one Old Testament commentator, a guy named Keel, writing back in 1861, worked out the numbers. He figured this, if each married couple in the first generation had three sons and three daughters, each married couple, and if those people all married together so that the next generation also had three sons and three daughters... And so for the first six generations, they had an average of three sons and three daughters, every marriage. But for the last four generations, when Pharaoh was making life hard for them, each family only had two sons and two daughters. Keel estimated that by the 10th generation, there would be 478,224 sons over 20 years of age, and 125,326 men of the ninth generation who were still alive. Hence, making a total of 603,550 men by the 400th year who were 20 years and older. Certainly a reasonable explanation. And you might have also heard it said that, no, Israel was not in Egypt for 400 years. No, they were only there for 215 years. That's very popular today. But Moses writes in Exodus chapter 12, when he's giving instructions on how to do the Passover, he writes this. Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came about at the end of 430 years to the very day that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. In other words, the very day that Jacob and all the 70 came down to Egypt was the very day, 430 years later, that they were shot out of Egypt to the very day. This isn't a mistake. This is just what Scripture teaches. All right. Well, let's move on. The last three chapters of Genesis 48, 49, and 50 all focus on one thing, the future of Israel, the nation. Now, you're going to read about what Jacob really wants, and there's an intimate scene here. So I want you to Follow with me as I start in verse 29. When the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I had found favor in your sight. You see the role reversal there? Because fathers lived through their sons in Genesis. And sons lived to honor their fathers. And so please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. 
Please do not bury me in Egypt. But when I, die, when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. He said, swear to me. So he swore to him. And then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. Now listen, Jacob has a bigger agenda than just wanting his dead carcass to get buried up in the land of Canaan. He's wanting to bear witness to his sons and his grandsons and all the generations who will come after him that God's promises are stronger than death. And death is pretty strong. It gets us all. The Lord doesn't return. And that God's promises concerning the promised land are also stronger than death. In fact, it's impossible today to understand the Jewish people apart from understanding what's going on in this passage here. To understand the Jewish people, I'm not talking about individual Jews, I'm talking about the Jews as a people, the Jews as a race, the Jews as a distinct ethnic group with distinct ethnic properties. It's impossible to understand them apart from the promised land. To this day, At every Passover, once a year, the Jews say to each other at the end of it all, next year in Jerusalem. The idea being, this is where we will be forever. The Israeli national anthem is called the Hatikvah, which means the hope. It was written in 1877, 70 years before the United Nations resolution made the land of Canaan, or the land of Palestine, the Israeli nation. 70 years before they became a nation in the eyes of the world, they wrote this, and it was so incendiary that in 1919, the British government outlawed it for a time. It couldn't even be said on British soil. Let me read you one verse of the Israeli national anthem. So long as it is still within our breasts, the Jewish heart beats true. So long as still toward the east to Zion looks the Jew. So long our hopes are not yet lost, 2,000 years we cherish them to live in freedom in the land of Zion and Jerusalem. That's the Jewish heart. And it's a hope that is reiterated all through the Old Testament and reiterated through the New Testament several times that God will reestablish the nation of Israel in the promised land. And when he does so at the end, They will be a people who will see Christ and will weep and mourn for him as over an only son, the scripture says. And they will repent and they will believe on him as their Messiah and they will be established in the land. And all the promises of God that Jacob is bearing witness to here shall surely come to pass. But for now, we only look at the promised land by faith. Because right now, everything ends in death. The book of Genesis itself begins in a garden and ends in a grave. Genesis clearly teaches that all who sin die and that death is the last and final enemy. Some grow sick and slowly die. Some will die by an accident. And then everybody goes into eternity. Unless Christ returns, you either 
are going to go into eternity of heaven or you're going to go into eternity of hell, separation from God, great misery, or you go to be with Christ in eternal glory. This is the very clear testimony of all of Scripture, and it deals so forthrightly with our death as people, every one of us. And so with that in mind, beloved, make your way to Genesis chapter 50. Genesis chapter 50. We'll pass over some of the prophecies that have been made by Jacob over his sons, the future of each of the tribes, and we'll finish with the moving account of Jacob's death. Look at the verse just prior to chapter 50, the last verse of chapter 49. And when Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Boy, that's how you say a final goodbye, isn't it? Remember when my mom died, the last thing my dad did after she was gone was kiss her face. That's how you say your final goodbye, isn't it? Well, the Hebrew custom has always been that when your relative dies... To honor the body, you bury it right away. Don't leave it out where a predator could get at it, uh, vermin, bird, malicious people wanting to steal maybe rings or something off the body. Bury it right away. Honor the body that way. But you remember, Jacob has made Joseph swear to him a double swearing, you must bury me in Canaan, not here in Egypt. And Canaan is good weeks travel if you're going to bring a bunch of people. So Joseph does this. He calls the physicians. Join me back in verse 2, please. Joseph commanded the servants, the physician, his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now 40 days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. By the way, the physicians were a different trade guild than the embalmers. Physicians, they would do embalming in 40 days. Embalmers did it in 70 days. Interesting, the exact detail that is given here by Moses is exactly in line with what is found in the Egyptian ancient records. But the total mourning time, we find out at the end of verse 3, was 70 days. Exactly, by the way, as is described in ancient uh, Egyptian text. Now, the scholars who deny that Genesis was written by Moses have no explanation for how what they believe were Jews who lived centuries after Moses wrote down this, how they got it right. In other words, how did they know that hundreds of years before they ever lived, the exact dates of certain kind of embalming methods and certain times of weeping funereal practices. They couldn't have because those kind of things change throughout Egyptian history. They've never explained that, but they still hold to their perspective that Moses didn't write this. And, of course, they're simply wrong. They just have an agenda. Well, Joseph, first uh, thing he's going to do is obtain the right permission to get Jacob buried up in Canaan because it's outside of Egypt. Join me in verse 4. When the days of mourning for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your sight, 
Please speak to Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I'm about to die in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me now. Therefore, please let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. Now you can detect from this that there's already a new Pharaoh. It's not the old Pharaoh who met Jacob when Jacob came in and blessed him, but this is a different Pharaoh. Notice what Joseph does. In verse 4, he speaks to the household of Pharaoh, not to Pharaoh directly. And then also, at the end of verse 6, Pharaoh's permission is almost caustic. Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. In other words, he really didn't want to let him go. You can detect now, no sympathy with this Pharaoh. Things are starting to get awkward and hard. But Joseph is playing it right. It's in order to hold off the coming oppression that he knows is coming from the Egyptians upon the Israelites. He knows that there are going to be 400 years of affliction upon his people. So Joseph is likely doing this in order to avoid negative repercussions upon his family. And then finally, this great man, Joseph, leads the bereavement. First, he leads the elders. Join me in verse 7. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. And then Joseph leads his family in verse 8. And all the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household, they left only their little ones and their flocks and the herds in the land of Goshen. And then all the men in verse 9 or verse 8, excuse me, verse 9, then they went up with him, both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. This would have been the military, a protective detail. And then Joseph leads the grieving. Verse 10, when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. He observed seven days mourning for his father, and the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad. They said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians, therefore it was named Abel Mitzrayim, which is beyond the Jordan. And now we come to the great climax of the book of Genesis. And we come here face to face with the true two great difficulties of life. And Genesis puts them right out front. The two great effects from Adam's fall in all of us. Number one, indwelling guilt. Number two, death. These great problems. First is what we do with our guilt our own guilt, which is always inside of us, but which we're always trying to deny, and then the the guilt of others against us, and the offense that it brings to us, the hurt, the pain, the agony that it brings to us. And look at how this plays out now. Their slanders come against Joseph. Join me in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead... They said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? That's a slander against Joseph. In other words, Joseph, what if he's a vindictive man? And what has Joseph ever done to deserve any of this? Everything he's ever done has shown that he's not a vindictive man. Why is this coming up? It's nothing in Joseph. It's everything in his brothers. They are driven by guilt. Then there's even more slander. Look at verse 16. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Before your your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, 
Please forgive. I beg you the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. The slander here is is that, Joseph, you're a hard-hearted man. You're an unforgiving man. Of course, this is a total fabrication. If Jacob had believed that about his son Joseph, he would have spoken directly to his son Joseph about it. He never would have gone through his son. He loved his son Joseph. All this is is blame shifting. The brothers are shifting their own guilt on to Joseph, and they're doing it in the most cruel of ways that they don't even see. They're making it as if Jacob Joseph's own father were the one calling Joseph unforgiving and hard-hearted. As if you are an unforgiving man. Oh, we would never say that, Joseph, but dad thought you were. Oh, the stab to the heart. Wow. So twisted, right? This is guilt. This is what guilt did. The power of guilt. Who can tell? And then, you remember a long time ago we were preaching and we were looking at Joseph having the dreams when he was a boy of 17 and he maybe foolishly, maybe childishly told them to the brothers and they hated him for it. The dreams were of them bowing down to him. And all the time we thought, well, the reason they're going to bow down to him is just to show that when he's going to be the Lord in Egypt, he's going to be such a great and powerful guy, they're just going to bow down to him merely because he has governmental authority. But I want you to see this and help you to understand the depth of guilt. Join me, please, in verse 18. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him. And said, Behold, we are your servants. What's going on here? Well, we always thought that they would bow down to Joseph because of governmental authority. Now we find out that the reason why they bow down to him is because Joseph has moral authority. He's never done any wrong to them. They've only ever done wrong to him. And here they are now at the death of their father doing wrong to Joseph once again. And when they come and they fall down before him, they unwittingly show that the ultimate reason for the prophecies given to Joseph were not merely that his brothers would fall down to him because he would have governmental authority, but because he would have the authority of God Almighty. And when all of us get before God, whether those who go to heaven or those who go to hell, we shall all fall down before God for his own moral authority. Some in worship some gnashing their teeth. This is more the former here. Brothers love Joseph, but they can't bring themselves to trust him. Guilt. Guilt within their heart. Guilt that's twisted their affections. Guilt that though Joseph has promised and provided for years and years, they can not accept him for who he really is. So what is the solution when everything around us is blame shifting and when we ourselves are by nature inveterate blame shifters as well? Well, there is a solution to all of this here in Genesis. 
And it is here. Look with me at verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? This is the answer to indwelling guilt. Indwelling guilt is made visible by blame shifting. And what is the solution? God and his love. Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? In other words, God is the one who releases you from the fear, not me. God is the one who will provide for you. God is the one who is loving. You don't even have to trust in whether I'm hard-hearted, unforgiving or not, for God himself is. The great answer to all of the issues of the depths of our hearts with guilt, shame, dishonor, embarrassment, sin, degradation, depravity, the things we say, the things we think, all of that, the answer is God himself. The one that we would love to blame shift our sins upon and who instead transfers all of our guilt over to his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Because he shifts our blame on his own son. So Joseph is saying, you, you know, you're making me out to be this hard-hearted, vindictive person It won't make your guilt go away. Only God can make your guilt go away. This is what you and I have to learn as well. Only God can make our guilt go away. As did Adam and Eve have to learn that, as memorialized in the wonderful hymn, The Love of God. Listen to this. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure, the saints and angels' song. When years of time shall pass away, and earthly thrones and kingdoms fall, when men who here refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call, God's love so sure shall still endure, all measureless and strong, redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saints and angel song. Could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, Were every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The love of God is the solution to our guilt, is the solution to our guilt. Oh, I love Genesis. Now, I have a question for you. Do the brothers at this moment feel forgiven? They're bowing down before him. We are your servants. Do they feel forgiven? The answer is no, right? They were guilty of slandering Joseph. But were they forgiven? The answer is yes. Forgiveness is not a feeling. 
Forgiveness is a promise. Join me in verse 20. As for you, Joseph says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to him. They don't feel forgiven, but they are forgiven. And when you feel forgiven, the only right way to feel forgiven is based on the promise of the one who declares to you, you're forgiven. Forgiveness of sins is a promise made to you, a blame shifter by God in the gospel. Forgiveness of sin is the very heart of the new covenant made effective by Christ's death and resurrection. God says in Hebrews chapter 8, This is the promise that I will make with them, declares the Lord. I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. We'll remember that in a minute, together, in the Lord's table. I will remember their sins and iniquities no more. We need to be reminded that we are forgiven as Christians. We need to hear the gospel over and over and over again, that God punished his sinless son in our place. He who never blame shifted, he who never, listen, had guilt, was made the guilty one on the cross when God poured on him all of our guilt and all the moral perversity and twistedness that goes along with it, the inside stuff, the hidden stuff. Well, it's our proof, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven amazingly by God. Well, shall we finish out the book? Let's read the last few verses together. Verse 22, Now Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons. Also the sons of Machir, the sons of Manasseh, were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Jacob made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110 years, and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. We start in the garden in the book, and we end in a grave in Egypt. Everything has gone from bliss and beauty to tragedy And sorrow. But for that which is stronger than death, the promise of God. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, how wonderful that you deal with us not only our guilt, but even death. And you make it so plain and clear for us to believe. It's only our guilt that hinders us from believing, our unbelief. Heal our unbelief. Cause us to believe in you and in your promises. Oh, Father in heaven, we are a weak people, quickly moved away from the hope of the gospel, quickly moved away from the hope of who you are. We want big bank accounts. We want lots of security on earth. We want all the things that our hearts would naturally want if we were living in the kingdom, but For now, we're in the cursed. 
So would you give to my beloved brothers and sisters in this room great confidence and faith in you, Lord Jesus Christ, in all of your good and holy words, in all of your good and holy ways. And Father, when the day comes that you have ordained for us to draw our last breath, may we, along with these godly patriarchs that we have looked at in Genesis, have no one left to forgive and no one left to ask forgiveness of. And would you graciously allow us to take our last breath with great confidence and joy that your promises are greater than death itself. We ask in your son's dear name, amen.